This is a great morning on which to be thinking about who we are in Christ. What is our real identity? And if you like this series, it's roughly based on a Bible study, a set of Bible studies that we did in our seniors home group at the end of last year. If you want a copy of it, I'm only too happy to email that to you. So this morning we are looking at valued, not worthless. And I've changed the Bible reading that you've got printed in the bulletin to just two very tiny sections of scripture. Rather than looking at a long passage and pulling some stuff out of it, what I want you to do is to really get the full message that's contained in these two little passages of scripture. And the first one is Jesus' tiny parable about the pearl of great price. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Now, I don't know if you, like me, have been brought up to interpret that parable that we are like the merchant and Jesus is the fine pearl. And when we find him, we sell everything that we have. We're ready to give up everything for the sake of knowing him. Do you know there's another interpretation of this parable? And I heard it first in Blackheath Uniting Church a couple of years ago. If you look it up on the internet, you'll find that it's quite well respected, this other interpretation. Now, I'm going to retell that story with a little bit of embellishment. And as I tell it, see if you can start to pick up another meaning for it. We start with a merchant who was obviously rich because if he could buy that pearl of great value, even though it took everything, he obviously had a lot of resources. So we start with a merchant who has a lot of wealth, a lot of resources at his command. But because he's a merchant, he doesn't just spend time in his beautiful home. Undoubtedly, if he is that wealthy, then he lives in a beautiful home. But he doesn't stay there. Because he's a merchant, he has to travel far from his beautiful home. And in his search for a pearl, he finds the pearl of great price. The pearl that meant if he wanted to own that, would cost him so dearly that he would have to give up everything for that pearl. Can you see that alternative interpretation coming through? That Jesus is the merchant, the one who has all the resources of heaven and earth. The one who travelled, and I'm not talking geographically here, but who travelled that huge distance from his beautiful home in heaven to share our life on earth, and who was prepared to give everything that he had, his own life, in order to gain us. Isn't that stunning? You are the pearl of great price. You are the pearl for whom Jesus the merchant gave up everything just to own you and admire you, to love you and to have you. Not that you have to do anything, you don't have to spend your life in service, we might want to, but just being. 
Now, there's something else about pearls in ancient times. Pearls were regarded as very mysterious. First of all, they were the only, and still are, the only gem produced by a living creature. Secondly, you can't cut them and polish them and facet them like you do with diamonds or emeralds or rubies. As you find that pearl in the oyster, so it is. Can't make it smaller, you can't increase its beauty. It is a thing of beauty as you find it. Furthermore, at the centre of every pearl is a flaw, something totally useless. At the centre of every pearl is a tiny piece of shell or perhaps a grain of sand or perhaps a tiny piece of a fish bone, something that would irritate the oyster. Now, it's interesting that the actual nature of the pearl, the nacre, the, the nacre is what it's called, it's what lines the pearl shell, it's mother of pearl. It's the same substance as chalk. It's actually not worth anything. But because the oyster lays down layer after layer after layer of nacre around this gritty object that irritates it, it creates this most beautiful thing of deep luster. As you look into a pearl, you, you seem to see deep into it. The beauty is intrinsic in the pearl. They were gathered in ancient times at a huge cost of life because they were deep in the ocean and people had to dive without any equipment down to the bottom of the ocean bed to find the oysters. And it's reckoned that it's maybe one in 10,000 oysters that produces a pearl. So you can imagine the loss of life that there was, the huge value, not just the intrinsic beauty of the pearl, but all that value of its rarity and the loss of life that went into finding the pearl. You are the pearl of great price. You are so highly valued by God. But why is it that we see ourselves not valued? We rather see that little flaw. We think of ourselves as that little bit of useless grit, that irritating thing there's an awful tendency for human beings to see ourselves in that way rather than to see ourselves from God's point of view, the pearl of great price that was worth everything. And I want to talk about some of the things that stop us from accepting this for ourselves. We hear these words and we think, well, that's very well for Andy and Melissa and Graham and Robin and for other people in the congregation. Yes, they're the pearl of great price, but I'm not. I'm not worth anything. Now, as we look at some of these things, they go back deep into childhood. If anything triggers you and you feel that you just can't stay, please feel free to leave. I've asked a couple of people to just keep an eye out. If anybody needs to go, we will make sure there's somebody with you to be safe. But this is Pentecost. We are talking today about the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm not going back 2,000 years to when, when the Holy Spirit first came and all of that. 
We're talking about the Holy Spirit in our lives right now, this very instant. And we're talking about the power of the Holy Spirit to bring healing over those things in the past that have caused you such disturbance. So if anybody feels that they get triggered today, I'll be down the front at the end of the service because I'm on prayer and I will be there with my diary and pen. So if you need to talk further, because this is not a five-minute quick pray and off you go and it's fine. To have these things healed is the beginning of a process. I am only too happy to meet with you and go through some of these things from the past if anybody recognises any of what we're going to say. I'm sorry. We'll go on to the next one. I'll come back to that one. What stops us? In the first place, one of the frequent things is that our parents or maybe our teachers at school or sometimes other kids said horrible things over us. Said things like, you'll never amount to anything. Oh, you're never going to be any good. I don't know why I gave birth to you in the first place. You'll never succeed at anything. You'll never find a husband. You'll never find a wife. You'll never have a good job. Words like that. Or perhaps they had a too high an expectation of you. No matter how hard you tried to clean your room, it never satisfied your mother. The minute she came in to look at what you had done, put that away. That's not right. Do that. Do that. But mum, I've spent hours cleaning it up. Yeah, well, it's not good enough. Try again. Or you got, say, 70% in maths and your father was an engineer who thought you should have done better. So you struggled and struggled and you got 80% in maths and your father said to you, well, if you work hard enough to get 80%, if you double your effort, you'll get 90%. Feeling that you could never please anybody. Now, those two things, those demeaning words or those unreal expectations leave us believing lies because when we're children we tend to take on board what adults say if people say these things to you in later life they don't affect you as much because you bring an adult perspective into what's said but when you're little you take these words on board and then you forget that you've believed those lies satan is very very cunning and he loves to mess with children so we believe lies like, I will never succeed at anything. I'll never be any good at anything. I'll never get a good job. I'll never complete an education. I'll never find a husband. I'll never get a wife. Whatever it might be, we believe these lies. Or if it's unreal expectations, it is, I'll, ne I, I'll never succeed. Sometimes... They're lies we believe ourselves about ourselves. Sometimes they're vows that we make um, about that I can never do this, I never will be able to. But they're lies. They're not things that God has put on our minds. I'm sorry, that's a very dull picture. I chose that one particularly of the woman with her hands over her ears because there's this null expression on her face. Her face is blank. 
all these things can be said around and you can't hear because of what you have believed in your early life. Abuse is another thing that will leave you feeling, I'm worthless, I'm useless, I'm only fit to be abused, or I'll never trust a woman, I'll never trust a man, or worse, I'll never trust anybody. These are all lies from Satan. But praise God, there's healing. Now, if anybody has a, a niggly feeling that maybe I've believed some of these things, maybe there's a memory that comes back of your mother or father or somebody else saying something to over you, like curse words, or some incidents in your life, then that's probably an indication that at that time you believed something about yourself. My own experience came when I was about four and my father was put to bed for three months with what they called a weak heart. Now, mind you, my father died a month away from his 95th birthday <laughs> with his heart no worse than the rest of him. He just died of old age. The doctor said, I don't know what to put on the death certificate. All his organs have failed. So he's... <laughs> His heart did him for 95 years, but he believed the medical profession that if he didn't go to bed for three months, he would die. And so I grew up through my childhood believing my father was going to die. He always believed he was going to die. And so I believed he would die. And if he died, I didn't want my mother to, to run my life. He was the idol of my life. I was, I was daddy's little girl. Mother was all right to provide the food and clothing and send me off to school every day, but I wasn't going to connect with her. It was a mystery to me all my adult life why I fought with my mother every day when she was a good mother. I, I, I could never understand. But I can remember, aged four, standing at the foot of the bed and seeing my father in bed. And it wasn't until ten years ago that God revealed to me, because I'd forgotten, as I looked at him and thought he was going to die, I didn't know what that meant, but he was certainly going to go away, I made a decision. I would have to be in control of my life and everything around me. Now, you make a decision like that, it rules the rest of your life. Now, for 72 years, or for 68 years, I forgot I had made that decision. But it ruled me. I can remember one day, dear Jenny Borden was leading worship. And I was sitting there, I don't know whether it was about the offering or whatever it was, but I can remember bossily telling her something or other about the service. I had no right to, it was nothing to do with me. Jenny does a beautiful job of leading worship, she could do it. I know I, know I apologised after, I can't remember what it was. But there's that in me that felt I had to be in charge, I had to be in control. The worship leader forgot the offering. I had to tell them. And so God had to do a lot of healing in me um, in that last 10 years to get me beyond that control. And you can see in me there has been a lot of healing. So the Holy Spirit is perfectly able to heal us of all those things of the past and he wants to. That's the other thing. He is longing to heal us. But we need to go down and uncover. We need to get down through the layers and we need him to reveal to us what was it that happened and how did we react. 
and then you have to do some work. I can lift off you the trauma that you felt at the time. I can lift that off you, but you have to do the work of forgiving anybody who has put those words on you or abused you, and then you have to renounce when we discover and, and God will show you what those lies or those vows are. You have to renounce them. And maybe it's a process. Maybe in the forgiveness, it's not something that happens overnight. It may be a long process and you have to relearn how to live without that lie or that vow over you. So it goes on for some time. It's not just a quick fix but I'm more than happy to help anybody that you know who wants to go through that process. I will walk through it with you. And the last one, unconfessed sin. I believe we have some very muddled thinking about the forgiveness of sin. I know we quote from 1 John that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know what I think is the really important phrase in that is the cleansing from unrighteousness. Sometimes we talk about having, in, not necessarily in this church, I'm thinking of the church at large, we talk about having to confess our sins so they'll be forgiven. It's like, um, excuse me Jesus, you didn't die for this sin, wait till I confess this sin and then you can go and die again and that sin will be forgiven. When Jesus died on the cross, he died for every sin of every person that had ever lived or will ever live. It's like a deposit's been made in the bank. So you go to a dentist and you're, you've got horrible teeth and he says, you're going to need $20,000 to get your teeth fixed. And there's $20,000 sitting in your bank account. What you've got to do is go to the bank and withdraw the money, and it can be used to fix your teeth. Jesus' death is like a deposit for us. All our sins have been forgiven. It's like we have to go to him and claim that forgiveness for ourselves. As it were, take it out of the bank. The forgiveness is already there. We just have to claim it. Now, what happens in the case of unconfessed sin there's a lot of sin in our life of which we are unaware. We just do it and it's forgiven and most of the time it's forgotten, it's fine. How you know you've got unconfessed sin in your life is Satan comes and niggles in your ear. And so when I say to you, you are the pearl of great value, Satan comes and says, no, you're not. How could you possibly be? You did. Now, I've gone to God and I've confessed that already. But it still comes back to my mind. So, um, I stood here, I used to stand here leading worship, going back about 16, 17 years. And we'd be in the middle of singing a song and Satan would whisper in my ear, what do you think you're doing there leading worship? You did. Now, I had already asked God's forgiveness for that particular thing, but it kept coming back to me. There's a very simple cure for it. James tells us 
confess your faults one to another. The Catholic Church got it half right. The Baptists have got it three quarters wrong. It doesn't mean go and find a priest every Saturday night and go and sit in a little box and sit there scrabbling through your mind, what have I done wrong this week that I should be confessing? It's not about that at all. On the other hand, Baptists have tended to say, well, just, forget, just confess all your sins to God and it's fine. Overlooking that James says, confess your faults one to another. It's not that I have to go to Andy and think about all the things I've done wrong and tell him. But if something is preying on your mind and stopping you from receiving the blessing of God, go and find some Christian that you trust or group of Christians, your home group leader, an elder, whoever it might be, somebody that you trust, tell them, I did this, I'm very ashamed of it and I wish I hadn't and I have confessed it to God but I still don't feel forgiven. Tell them, confess it again to God in their presence and let them say to you, in Jesus' name, you are forgiven. There are times when we need to hear another person tell us we are forgiven. It's not rocket science. God made us to be corporate. We are part of the body of Christ. We need each other. Look at us here, sitting, worshipping together. We're not all just sitting in our homes listening to songs of praise, worshipping individually. We're here together. We need each other. And so if you ever have anything preying on your mind, just find somebody, tell them, this is really worrying me. I will confess it to God. Let them hear your confession and say, in Jesus' name, you are forgiven. I can assure you it will go away. And you are forgiven. You're already forgiven by Jesus. But we'll go back to this slide. I only added this one this morning, so I'm not surprised I forgot it. Here is confirmation about how God loves us. While we're only looking at a couple of verses of Scripture... It's right throughout scripture. This is how God values us. It's how he sees us. You are redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. That's from 1 Peter. From 1 John. Oh, I love these verses. How great is the love that God has lavished on us. God hasn't... That terrible sermon of Jonathan Edwards of hundreds of years ago with God dangling a sinner over the fires of hell and grudgingly Jesus died for the sinner. So grudgingly an angry God pulls the sinner back from the fires of hell. Really? How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God and that is what we are. The pearl of great price. For God so loved the world. All right, God loved everybody in all those other continents, in Asia and Africa and Europe and whatever. But really interpreting this verse, it's God loved, put your name there, 
God loved you so much that he gave his one and only son. And I want to finish with another verse of scripture, half a verse of scripture, and I want to give you an alternate interpretation of this verse. It must be the alternate morning, I think. Now, again, I guess that you, like me, have read in many versions of Scripture the translation of this verse which reads, To you then who believe, he, Jesus, is precious. That's, that's normally how it's translated, that Jesus is precious. Yes, he is. But it's not exactly what the Greek says. And people have struggled to translate because it's one of those phrases that if you just do it literally, it doesn't go into another language. But what the Greek says, to you who believe, who adhere to trusting and rely on Jesus, is the very preciousness of Jesus himself. Now, I first came across that translation in the Amplified Bible, and I was reading it one day and I went, what? Yes, Jesus is precious. Now, we know what makes him precious. He shares the holiness of God. He shares the beauty. He shares the perfection. He shares that honour. He shares that glory. He shares every best thing that we could imagine and more. But if we are living by faith in him, not only do we admire his preciousness, that preciousness comes down and includes us. We share the glory of God, the value, the honour, the love that is the nature of God by believing in him we share. Now try and get your mind around that. You might have to chew that over for the next week or month or year to get it from here down into here. You are the pearl of inestimable value that Jesus not only gave his life to win you, to let you share fellowship with the Father and everlasting life, even to share in this very character and nature of Jesus himself. We are not worthless. We are of inestimable, inestimable value. If there's anything hindering you from realising that, because it's life-changing, when you see that, it changes your whole outlook on life. It changes your belief. It changes your attitude. It changes your actions. If anything is hindering you from that, 
and be courageous enough to come and seek help. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we can't get our human minds around any of this. Humanly speaking, all we can see is the floor in the middle of the, of, of the pool. We are so conscious that we are worthless. There's nothing in us that would make you see us of value. And yet, Lord, such is your love that you see every one of us as the pearl of great price, that you gave up everything just to win us so that we could not only share your life, but even share in that preciousness, Lord. So, Father, will you help us? Will you help us to discover and work through anything that would hinder us from taking on board that very special meaning of how much you love us and value us. By the power of the Holy Spirit, that any of those lies or curses, anything that we've believed in the past might be broken, that we will be completely free to understand some of your love for us and to respond with our love for you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. I'm next to you, Lil, because um, just before you got up to preach, I felt out of nowhere to sing that song, My Hope is Built on Nothing Less. Well, when I say out of nowhere, I hadn't planned to do it. No. But I did. And as we were singing it, you know, it was was a beautiful moment, I think. But then I, um, as Lil put up, 1 Peter 2, 7, I thought, hang on. I want you to listen to this uh, around that verse that you preached. Verse 6 says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now, to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So, out of nowhere, you picked that verse, and then I I sang that song. I think God is saying something to us this morning. And I told us we should linger. 